Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. We're going to continue this evening our study in the book of Genesis. So you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 9. We've come as far as is chapter 9 here in our study, making our way through. We'll be in Genesis this evening as well as next Wednesday. And believe it or not, next Wednesday will be our last midweek Wednesday for 2020. Hard to believe, right? Genesis chapter 9. Let's consider for a moment here where we've been in the book of Genesis. Where, where does Genesis begin? In Genesis chapter 1, what do, we, what do we find? In the beginning, right? It's the creation account. And that really takes us through Genesis 1 and 2 for the most part, right? We see, we see the, the six days of creation, the seventh day God rested, the Sabbath. We go into Genesis 2 and we see creation from a little bit of a different perspective. I like to say it's a little bit zoomed in. We see some more detail. And then as we get into Genesis 3, what begins to happen? You guys know it. Trust yourself. Sin. Sin, right? The fall. We see the fall of man. We see Adam and Eve and their descent into sin. And then from there, we begin to see the effects of sin on the world, right? Which really takes us up to the time of Noah that we've been studying over the past several weeks. And during the time of Noah, is it a, is it a pretty, pretty good time? People are, are, are pretty good people or are people pretty wicked? People are pretty wicked, right? Sin has become so pervasive throughout the world. And remember, we've considered some things um, that a lot of commentators and, and folks that have studied Genesis in depth, uh, study the genealogies and population growth. I mean, I sometimes think that it's our inclination to think that it was Noah and a handful of people in a small village at that time, and then a flood came through and wiped them out. The fact is, uh, there was a substantial population on the earth at that time, but they were so wicked that God determined that, for lack of a better term, we needed to start over. And so he found a righteous man in his family that he enlisted, he called to not only preach, I believe, repentance, to share with people what was going to come, but also he enlisted him to build an ark. Over the last few weeks, in the last couple of chapters, we considered the building of the ark, and then, of course, the flood that comes it's a global flood, a worldwide flood. This wasn't a local flood. It wouldn't make sense. The things we see in Scripture would not make sense if it was a local flood. This was a global flood over the entire earth. And with the exception of, of Noah and his family, as well as uh, the animals that he was instructed to take on board, everything else uh, was, was wiped out, with, of course, the exception of the aquatic uh, animals, those that could survive okay in the water, right? And then we made our way into chapter 8 last time, and we, we see there Noah's deliverance. We considered the fact that after a significant period of time, uh, I think a lot of times too people think that Noah was just in the ark for how many days? A lot of times we think 40 days, right? Because it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. But that was just the flooding. That was just the rain that came on the earth. In fact, he was on the ark for what is likely 377 days. So he spent a good bit of time. You know, one pastor I heard said that uh, you know, Noah went from being a carpenter to being a sailor, and to, as we'll see here this evening, to then being a farmer. Uh, I suppose in several hundred years of life, you can be a lot of different things. And Noah was indeed that. 
And so we come to this place in chapter 8 then when Noah and his family are delivered. The, the floodwaters uh, recede and the ark comes to rest there on the top or somewhere near the top of Mount Ararat. And God begins to call Noah out of the ark. And that's really where we pick up in chapter 8 and verses 20 through 22. Because I want us to see here and be reminded of what it is that as God calls Noah out of the ark. And listen, that's the, this is significant here. I mean... It, Yes, Noah and his family are, are just sort of stepping out of the ark now, but we must remember that there was a point in time where God said to Noah and his family, come in, come in, come into the ark, come in and be with me. This was, by the way, about a week before the floodwater started to come. So for Noah, I mean, literally every step of the way was truly a test of faith, truly a, a, a test of, of trusting God and saying, okay, I'm going to be obedient to the Lord. It doesn't make sense right now, but he continued to just be obedient and to follow after the Lord. And so God invites them into the ark, and the implication there is God says, come join me, come, come in, is that the presence of God is there with him. It wasn't just that God was some far-off being that just sort of said, no, you need to go in there now. He's, he's welcoming him, he's drawing him, the same way that God drew you, Christian, unto himself at some point in your life. He says, come to me. And now the time, though, has come where they've, they've found safety in the ark, and now the whole world's changed, okay? The flood has changed the entire world. Everything about it looks different now, and the signs of death are there. Um, the, the flood itself has changed the topography of the land. The, the weather has changed. It, this really, for Noah, feels like this is a new world. Everything is different, and... They're feeling a little bit, I think if we could relate to them, where it's like, maybe I'll just stay in here for a little while longer. This is really safe. You know, when, when, when you first got saved, you probably pretty excited about what the Lord was doing, right? Excited to tell people about Jesus, but at the same time, you started to go to church, you started to get plugged in with a church family, and maybe after a period of time, you found yourself very comfortable in this new environment, this new world, right? And you're doing Bible studies, and you're doing worship, and you're getting to know people, and you just love these people, and you think, how could people who I didn't really know before just suddenly feel so so safe and, and so much like family to me, and I hope that's been your experience in church, and but there does come a point where God starts to say, okay, I, I, I invited you in, but now I'm sending you out. It's time for you to go. And maybe in those moments we think, I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to. I want us to stay right here. This isn't to be condemning in any way right now, but if I said, okay, guys, right now, just pack up your stuff. We're going out, and we're, and we're, we're going to go, and we're going to hit sand hills, and we're going to start witnessing on the street corners and sand hills. But there's a couple of you that would be like, yes. Let's do it. That's called the gift of evangelism, okay? A couple of you are like, yeah, let's do it. I'm going. And the rest of you are going to be like, let's just stay right here. It feels comfortable. It's warm. It's pleasant, right? I'm not knocking you. Let's just be honest with ourselves, right? It feels a little more comfortable. And so we come to this point where God says, it's time to go. It's time to go out into this world. I've got something for you to do. I've got a mission for you. And then what's the first order of business for Noah? Here it says, it says, then Noah built an altar to the Lord, verse 20, and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. And then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. 
And so here as Noah comes out of the ark, he and his family, and there's likely a sense of like, man, where, where are we? What are we doing? What's, what's going to be before us? He does exactly what he should do, exactly what any of us should do in those moments is to say, God, I'm going to give you glory. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring an offering to you. I'm going to seek you, Lord. And, um, and so we get a wonderful pattern here from Noah of what all of us should do as we begin a new, uh, as, we, as we venture out in a new, new step of faith and a new work of the Lord. And so that's his first order of business here. And then as we see in chapter 9, in the first part of verse 1, we see God's response. Um, not only that uh, the Lord smells a soothing aroma, but in verse 1 of chapter 9, and so God blessed Noah. What we need to see here is that Noah's offering to the Lord was indeed a, a very great sacrifice. Here is he took from what he had left there in the ark. These were likely to him and to his family necessary animals for them to begin their new life. But here Noah says, no, first I'm going to give these back to you. I'm gonna, there's going to be great risk, great sacrifice, but I'm going to offer this to you, Lord. And God blesses him for it. And then we see that God begins to speak to Noah. In fact, for the first 18 verses here of chapter 9, it's God addressing Noah. And so as we look to that now, if you just agree with me in prayer again, Father, as we look now here to your word and to the words that you had for Noah, Lord, uh, uh, may you open our eyes uh, to the truth of your word here and and uh, help us, Lord, to apply it to our lives, the areas, Lord, where we can find application and and just to consider your goodness. And as you make a covenant, Lord, with, with Noah and for all generations, Lord, may we truly tonight Lord, grasp the significance of what's uh, uh, recorded here in the, in the pages of Scripture, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so again then in, in, in verse 1, so God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 2, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Now, is this sounding familiar to you at all? Uh, it, it should be, as this is quite similar to God's instruction there in the Garden of Eden. Go back to the beginning. Go back to chapters 1 and 2 as God gives instruction to Adam and then to Eve saying, this, this is in effect yours. Uh, you shall have dominion over all of these things. Rule it and subdue it. So it's very similar to what we see in the Garden of Eden, though there are some variances. Now what we see here is essentially God's saying it's time to start over. This was the intention here, we're starting over. The, the, the wickedness uh, of, of the generation that was living on the earth, they've been wiped out. Now, now mind you, sin's not gone. At this point, sin has not been dealt with, but God has sufficiently established here a new beginning for man. And so he's saying, start over here, begin to fill the earth again. However, in, in the first instruction to Adam and Eve, they had dominion over the world. They had dominion over the animals. The animals were created in such a way where they were not violent towards them, at least initially. Uh, but here the term dominion is not used. It gives us a little bit of insight into some of the differences of the world at this time. Because again, it seems as if the effects of Satan are still very much upon the earth, but they've just made their way uh, a little bit further now in God's plan of salvation. 
And so they don't have absolute dominion over all of the earth because there is still now an enemy, a prince of the power of the air, who, who, who is ruling over aspects of this fallen world. But what it does say here is that the fear of man will be upon the animals. That's interesting, right? And that's different. We have to pay attention to that. The fear of man will be upon uh, all of these animals at this point. Now, he doesn't mention in this particular list the cattle like he's mentioned before, and so it suggests to us that maybe those animals that are more of a domesticated nature are going to be less afraid of, of Noah and his family and of mankind in general. But the rest of the animals, they're going to be afraid. And this is interesting because when's the last time that maybe one of you tried to catch a wild animal? Was it easy? If you did, right? Some of you may have heard the story because my kids like to tell a lot of, my parents have an armadillo problem up at their house. I didn't know when we moved down here that there was an abundance of armadillos, particularly in the upstate of South Carolina. If you didn't know that, there are a lot of armadillos. And they cause a lot of problems. And uh, problems, okay, that's relative, okay? But nevertheless, they're a nuisance, okay? I won't go into the whole story there, but we've attempted to catch an armadillo. In fact, one night, we had a very close encounter. It even involved me kicking the armadillo. It was a reaction in the moment. I didn't have shoes on. It hurt, okay? That toe, that toe was busted up for a while. The armadillo was really thrown off by it, proceeded to run into our car, boom, right into the front of the car, okay? And then the dog's freaking out. It was pretty interesting, right? Now, here's the thing. There was fear upon that armadillo, right? This, this little animal had the sense of, oh my gosh, and, and was trying to get out of there, okay? We see this evident in creation today. So this is one of the differences here. All sorts of animals spook and, and, and run away. Another difference here, God says, of the animals is that, and here's the wonderful thing, I can get an amen on this one, that they will be food for you. Did I get an amen? Is there anybody out there? I know some of you are thinking, amen, okay? So not only now uh, is there uh, the green herb, but now the animals are food for you, which means you've got meat and a salad bar now, okay? So the menu is expanded in this new world. And, and the fact is, as far as God's instruction here regarding animals, it's pretty wide open in terms of you can eat all these animals, uh, you know, feel free to, to try them all. It's, it's later, in fact, under the, the law, the Mosaic law, that there's more of a difference that's established in terms of clean and unclean uh, animals. And then we know, once again, praise God, under a new covenant, uh, Peter himself has a vision where God says, take, eat, go for it, right? And so uh, the animals being there for man's purposes and for food um, is established now here in this new world, okay? And, 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 and it wouldn't certainly be my intent, as funny as it might be, to try and sort of establish some dance against vegetarianism uh, tonight. But, but the fact of the matter is, biblically speaking, there's, there's nowhere in Scripture where it tells us that that's kind of the way that you've got to be, that being a vegetarian is somehow better. It's actually quite the opposite of that, that throughout Scripture we sort of see this instruction to eat, to take of what uh, has been given to us in this, in this world. In fact, in 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy in chapter 4, in verses 3 and 4, if you're taking notes, you can just write this down. It's speaking of the time of the great apostasy, okay? So any of you familiar with 1 Timothy 4, there it's talking about there's going to be a turning away. 
There's going to be a rejection of Christ. There's going to be a falling away. And one of the interesting things that it says about that particular time is that there are going to be some who draw others away from the faith. And part of their teaching is that they're going to instruct people to abstain from certain foods, including meat. The conclusion there is, is that <laughs> watch out for people who are telling you not to eat any meat. Okay. It's interesting here, and, and, and that's less of the point. What the point is, though, is there's going to be people in the, last, uh, in the last days in the great apostasy who are going to sort of suggest that uh, by abstaining from these foods or by staining, abstaining from these foods, you're going to maybe reach more of an enlightened state, uh, that you're going to be a bit more spiritual, uh, that these particular foods maybe cause you to you know, sort of have this uh, kind of uh, incredible experience in your body. That, and, and, and this is a lot of that New Age stuff, okay, that we're even beginning to see evidence of in our culture today. And it's, it's just an interesting thing for us to consider how many times today you'll hear different things about well you should eat this or you shouldn't eat this and it becomes almost religious for people it becomes almost the, this this spiritual thing we've got to be aware of that jesus himself if you read the, the king james version even if you go back and look at the original greek language jesus himself and luke in chapter 24 verse 41 this is when jesus was resurrected okay and he meets the disciples there on the uh on the shoreline and Jesus says to his disciples, what does he say? In the original Greek language, he says, do you have any meat? Okay, it's, tonight's not about meat, okay? The title of the message tonight isn't be meat eaters. But I think it's pretty fascinating if you just go back to the beginning of time and see, and throughout scripture, there's some specific instruction as it pertains to this. And even then to consider how much diet is kind of a part of how, how consuming it is in many respects of, of people's lives uh, today. And so there is, though, some instruction with this. As, as big of a deal as it is that Noah's now stepping off of the ark into this kind of unknown territory, it can seem almost insignificant, some of the instruction that's been being given to him. But we must understand that as God, as God is sort of establishing this new relationship and he's establishing this new world, he's given him some specific commands. The first command that he really gives him here, the first instruction, it's dietary. Okay, so right off the bat, God is giving instruction as it relates to just diet and what it is it should eat. And now then God starts to, to make a little bit of a transition here to, to discipline and to government. Uh, but first he says, but you shall not eat flesh, verse 4, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Okay, so surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So God here transitions from their diet with the discussion of blood, saying you, you can't eat the blood. Okay, and, and, and we know that throughout history, this has been a common uh, pagan worship practice, the consumption of blood. But really the purpose is that there's, there's life in the blood. There's a purpose for the blood. The blood was for sacrifice. The blood was for atonement. 
we see instruction of that in Leviticus. In Leviticus 17, verse 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. We know Scripture tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so God here is reinforcing the fact that there is importance in the blood. There's life in the blood, and that blood is for atonement. It's not for your consumption. So he's beginning now to differentiate between uh, how they're to eat the animals that are available to them now versus how they're to use them for the atonement of their sin. And then God uses that to connect then to the consideration of life, that life is made in the image of God and how life must be protected. Now, as it pertains to this dietary requirement here, the Jerusalem Council upheld this practice uh, when they were instructing the Gentiles. We find that in Acts chapter 15. In Acts 15 verses 19 and 20, the Jerusalem council there, as there was some pressure on them to say of Gentiles that were converting to Christianity, which at that time was, it was uh, mixed in the church amongst uh, Jewish and Gentile. Uh, well, hey, do the Gentiles need to be circumcised? Uh, as Jews, we were circumcised, and now we're part of the church. Do they need to go through some of this stuff too, right? And so there was a lot of things that was coming at the early the leaders there in the early church of what requirements are we going to put on them? And ultimately, the decision was, let's not put many requirements on them. We don't want to turn people away from uh, the church unnecessarily, but there was a few things, one of which was this practice of consuming the blood. And so that's something that even made its way into the New Testament uh, church. But as I mentioned, God then takes us beyond just the dietary to more of a, a pro-life ethic, if you will, but, but also uh, more specifically civil and judicial uh, matters in terms of the value of life and that those who take life must be punished. Um, what we see here in Scripture truly is a defense to, to some degree, mind you, to some degree. Throughout history, many people have taken different aspects of Scripture and sought to use them as proof texts for a particular ethic. To some degree here, we see certainly a defense of, of government, Noah being and his family being the first and the only family here that's going to begin to repopulate the earth. There was a sense of you need to be in, in charge, if you will. There's going to be some requirements upon you to establish uh, order amongst the culture. And, and one of those key things is you're going to protect life and you're going to punish those who take life. Um, and so we see here not only uh, a support of, of government and of discipline, but even of capital punishment, which has long been debated, of course, uh, both within and outside of the church. And so, again, this is instruction now that's being given to Noah. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on this here tonight. Um, we certainly could. We could make this a topical study on those, on those particular issues. Nor do I care this evening to really try and make some sort of case for capital punishment, but I think it's important to understand that the Bible supports us both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, at least in terms of, the, of an understanding that there's a consequence to breaking laws and in particular the taking of life, that God values life, that life is made in the image of God, and that is not to be just dismissed. Uh, there are to be steep consequences for those who take life. We could consider that another time in terms of the evidence we see for that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So here God's giving instruction on dietary requirements, he's giving instruction on discipline, and then he, he's, he's just giving them direction in terms of, in verse 7, and as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply it, and multiply in it. And so he's, he's saying it, it, it's time for you to repopulate the earth. And so begins that uh, process once again. And, and so this is, in this instruction, we find that it is similar to what we see uh, in the garden. Uh, 
fill the earth. And so God here has just spoken in terms of instruction, and now um, God's going to do something a little bit differently here. In verse 8 it says, Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me... Now this is interesting because this doesn't happen very often. There's a good bit of Scripture. There's, there's a, as we look throughout Scripture, we see a good bit of God's instruction to us. We see that there in the first seven verses. God's saying, Noah, here, here's some things you've got to consider. Here's some things you need to do. But now God's saying, and as for me, when God says, as for me, we ought to pay attention. <laughs> God's about to say, now I'm going to do something. And he says, and as for me, behold, it's even that word there suggests, check this out, okay, look at this. I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, now he's included the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. God's now saying, I've given you this instruction as you've come out of the ark, and, and now as for me, I'm going to make this covenant with, with not only you, Noah, but your, your family members, every, every animal that's with you there in the ark, every, every living thing, and, and not just that, but all the descendants after you. And do you know then that that includes us? fact of the matter is, if you hold to a biblical account of creation, then what we need to understand is that all people today have come from Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Okay? That there are those three boys that all of humanity has descended from. And really, it's not that much of a stretch uh, there's many people today who have studied genealogies, who have studied the origins of man, who have, from a Christian perspective, looked at uh, things like the Human Genome Project and uh, G DNA evidence, and consistently uh, they find themselves going back to significant commonalities amongst the human race, right? Uh, even recently, uh, uh, several years ago, a study was done where basically they, 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 they followed this DNA path all the way back to ultimately where their conclusion was essentially that there was there's 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 one original sort of genome one one DNA strand that all of humanity really begins to point back to and and even as you study these different things um, you can see geographically based off of what the word of God says and then descendants from there where we see uh, Shem Ham and Japheth go um, and w what really is the area of the Middle East and over into uh, Asia and um, and Israel down into uh, Egypt and into Africa and then up into Europe and then eventually from there into America. I mean, you can. It's not hard at all to 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 draw these lineages back. Okay, and so we're de we're descendants here and 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 part of this covenant. And so here God says, "It's for me." He says, I'm making a covenant with you. Now, a covenant is an agreement or a contract that is made between two parties. Now, depending on how you count them, in Scripture, there are really only seven or eight covenants that God makes. Okay? So throughout all of Scripture, I believe there's seven. Again, it kind of depends on how you count them and if you can kind of split hairs on, on one of them. I think there's seven covenants that God makes in Scripture. Now, some of those covenants are conditional. Some are unconditional, some are specific to Israel, and some 
include the church. Now, the first covenant, and now the, the one here that God is making, this is the second covenant. But, but again, out of, out of only seven, this is a big deal. So when God says, as for me, and I'm making a covenant with you, we've got to pay attention to these things. These are the points, only seven in Scripture, where God communicates a specific thing about, this is what I'm going to do. And so the first covenant is considered the Adamic covenant. Okay? That's the covenant made with Adam. And that's where some people split this one out, and they have uh, the Edenic, the Eden covenant, and the Adam covenant. Um, I think both can kind of be included in one here. And we see this in Genesis 1, 26 through 31, as well as Genesis 3, 14 through 19. And that's really how God's dealing with uh, Adam, uh, both within the garden as well as in the fall, in terms of his instruction to Adam. And then we have the second covenant. That's what we're dealing with here. Uh, This is the Noahic covenant, the Noah covenant. And this is an unconditional covenant that God is making with Noah. Notice here, unconditional. God's not saying, if you do this, then I'll do this. He's saying, no, this is what I'm going to do. You and all your descendants, all your people, this is what I'm going to do. You don't have to do anything. This is a commitment that I'm making to you. Noah was not required to do anything for God to keep his end of the agreement here. We don't have to do anything. And note here that it includes all of creation, all of the animals. God's made a covenant here. Now the third covenant that's made, and I'm just going to go through these quickly for the sake of our understanding here. The third covenant comes in Genesis chapter 12. That's the Abrahamic covenant. And that's his covenant promise, and that's a pretty cool covenant, as we know, because as God calls Abraham, he makes a promise with him. There's really four parts to that covenant. He says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you numerous descendants. I'm going to give you this incredible land, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay? That's the third covenant. The fourth covenant we find is uh, considered the, the it's just called the land covenant, or the Palestinian covenant. We see that in Deuteronomy 30, which is really... Um, this is uh, conditional based on their obedience. So again, some covenants conditional, some unconditional. And so this is one where we see a conditional covenant for them to inhabit the land, which they, of course, don't keep their end of the covenant. And uh, there's really kind of a, a near and far fulfillment then of this one. And that's the purpose, in my opinion, for the millennial reign, so that covenant can be uh, fulfilled uh, as Israel inhabits the land. We see the fifth covenant. That's the Mosaic covenant. Uh, blessing and cursing based off of obedience. Okay, the sixth covenant—that's the Davidic covenant. We find that in Second Samuel chapter seven. Okay, this reinforcing the the seed of David, the forever throne. Okay, uh, we see that in an immediate uh, fulfillment with Solomon, but also a far fulfillment, of course, through Jesus, our Savior. And then, of course, the wonderful seventh covenant, which is a new covenant, a new covenant of grace that we find in the New Testament. Um, John the Baptist. Uh, declaring Jesus to be the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the um, seventh covenant. And so here's the covenants that God makes throughout history with man. But this is the second one here. As God says in verse 11, Thus I establish my covenant with you. Listen. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. What do you suppose never again means? Never again, okay? Never again. And so when there's threats of sort of this, uh, of a global catastrophe that's going to flood the entire world, we can be confident, well, that's not going to happen. doesn't mean that there's not flooding in the world. It doesn't mean that there's not, uh, we we see it on a regular basis, catastrophes that, that affect the world. But in terms of God 
smiting man. In terms of God saying, I'm going to bring this calamity upon you and wipe you out. That's not going to happen. Okay? He has made a covenant. And God said, verse 12, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. Okay? And ongoing, that includes us. Verse 13, I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, And I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So God here has reinforced his covenant and he's given a sign for his covenant. Now the rainbow up until this point was likely, this was a new thing most likely. If what we understand correctly about the pre-flood world, it was somewhat of a hydrosphere at that point. There was no rain coming upon the earth. It was only coming up. And so there would not have been clouds and, and, and water in the air that would uh, make for a rainbow. It's only after the time of the flood now. And so this had to have been a new experience for Noah. I can only imagine as God set his rainbow in the sky that there had to have been a sense of, wow, that's pretty awesome. Anytime any of us have likely, especially when you were young, saw your first rainbow and really maybe a really vivid one a really just i mean that thing was standing out it was kind of like holy smokes and even still today when i see a rainbow it's kind of like that's that's kind of that's kind of trippy right i mean now we know the science i suppose behind it which is unfortunate maybe because it's lost a little bit of its wonder in that way as you start to try and just sort of explain this sort of thing i mean it's like you'll be driving down the road right and it's like there's this big arch in the sky full of color that's pretty stinking cool okay And that is what God has said. Listen, when that happens, that's a sign. That's a sign of a covenant that I made with my people. And God says, when I see it, I'm going to remember the covenant. What about us? When we see the rainbow, do we think of, man, God's faithful. God's made a promise. And he keeps his promises. Now, why the rainbow? Do you think God was just kind of thinking, ah, this will be cool. Here's some colors in the sky for you, right? Now think what's in the think think what, what's what's in the what's in the name here? It's a bow, right? It's a bow, like a like one of these, bow and arrow, okay? A rainbow, okay? It's a bow. Um, it's a, it's a particular shape. What's one of the ancient signs of war? Anybody know? An archer with a bow and an arrow. Okay, if you saw that symbol and you can still see that symbol today on different things, different drawings. Um, and things like that, that's going to be a symbol of war. Okay, now if an archer has a bow pulled and there's an arrow in it, and, and the, it's really difficult for an archer to be able to reverse the bow and somehow point it at himself. You're not going to see that happen. Okay, so the implication there is that the archer is pointing at an enemy. Okay, that's what we see uh, with the, the, the archer shooting a bow and the, and the arrow is pointing at uh, the enemy. Now, if the rainbow is God's bow, mind you, only appearing in the clearing of the clouds after a storm, as the glory of the heavens begin to pass through the mist in the air, you begin to see what? If, if, if the, if the bow is looking like this, you begin to see God setting his bow 
in the sky, right? He's setting it down. Which way is the bow now, now pointed? Back towards him. It's not being pointed at earth anymore. It's not being pointed at the people anymore. Furthermore, there's no arrow in it. The arrow has been loosed. What was intended to be accomplished has been accomplished. As God sets his rainbow in the, in the sky, what God is saying is, I'm done. I'm done. I've made a covenant with you. Never again. Never again. And this is what the rabbis consistently taught, <clears throat> that, God sent, that God set his weapon down in a peaceful manner and said, no more conflict. And so you see, guys, God has made promises, and he keeps those promises. Now, we must ask the question, is man good at this point? Is man now good as all of this has been accomplished? No, he's not. Satan is still an adversary that, that uh, is present in this world. What's been accomplished, though, is a part of God's plan of salvation. But we know that sin is not gone from the earth. In fact, we'll see here shortly that that's absolutely the case. Okay? But God made a covenant. So the implication there is God didn't say, because you are now this, now I'll... I'll be this. He didn't say, because you're now good, because you now earned my favor, because you've now uh, made yourself holy and righteous, I'll make a covenant with you. Right? Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that's what we need to understand about His covenants as well, guys, is they are, yes, some of the covenants are conditional. God says, do this and I'll bless you. Don't do this and you're going to bring things upon yourself. But other covenants, He says, no, this is unconditional. Okay, so he said, this is the sign, here's the rainbow, and God will remember his covenant whenever he sees it. And, and, and here's the other thing, you know where else we see the rainbow? We see the rainbow here in the beginning in Genesis as God says, this is a sign. Do you know the next time we see the rainbow in Scripture? Revelation chapter 4, throne room of heaven, surrounding his throne. He remembers the sign that he made of his covenant. Okay? So God's promises should be such an encouragement to us, especially when we see the Lord, it's not based off of me. Lord, it's what you've said you will do. And you are far more faithful than me, Lord. Because if this was a conditional covenant, we'd be in trouble. We wouldn't make it out of chapter (laughs) 9. Okay? Now it says in verse 18, Now the sons of Noah. So now God's done speaking here um, in terms of uh, directly to them. In verse 18, we read, Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth was populated. We already kind of uh, touched on that. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. In verse 21, then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. What a sharp departure from our glorying in the rainbow just a moment ago, right? A sign of the covenant, the rainbow, peace, God says I'm done, and now Noah's drunk in a tent naked. Like, man, that happens fast, doesn't it? Right? One minute he's in the ark, and there's sacrifice, and there's blessing, and now this. But sadly... Often this is the pattern, right? Now, certainly some time has gone by. It wasn't like it was that night, okay? How do we know that? Well, as we continue to read, we'll see indication, at least some debate this, but indication that Noah, uh, that he has grandsons at this point, so there's been um, some time that's gone by there for him to have, uh, for his children to have children. Uh, If you want to debate that and say, I don't know that that much time has gone by because some people uh, suggest that he at least had to have enough time to plant a vineyard and for it to grow and for him to harvest the vineyard and make a bottle of wine. Bottle of wine. Okay, so this isn't the next day. Some time has has gone by here at this point. Um, so again, how how long we don't exactly know. 
Now, it can be a weird story here that we consider in the life of Noah, um, and certainly sad as you just consider, man, he, he, he was here, he was, it seemed like he was doing great, and he was, he was uh, sacrificing to the Lord, and, and, and now, man, what, what, what happened here with Noah? But rest assured, Noah was a faithful man. Um, uh, history testifies to that, Scripture testifies to that, certainly as he's considered in Hebrews chapter 11, he's, he's celebrated as a man of great faith, but he slips up, clearly he slips up here. And you know, it's often the case that a man has a great experience with God. He spends time in his presence. He's moved. He's gone through a storm. Uh, God has carried him through it. Uh, There's incredible recognition of what God has done in their life, but then life gets easy again. Life starts to calm down a little bit, right? Noah settles into the land. Uh, Maybe the flood has become a little bit more of, yeah, remember remember the flood? But man, we're doing good. We're repopulating the the earth. I'm growing my vineyards. I'm doing my thing. We're, We're doing good here. And it's oftentimes when we sort of settle into that place of comfort that all of a sudden we can start to slip again. And it's my opinion that we see this happen here in the life of, of Noah. And the thing is, is it only takes, it only, we, don't, we don't have much else about Noah. We don't, we don't know a ton uh, of other things in terms of what his life was like at this particular time. But I think what we should see in this is that it only takes one, it only takes one time. It only takes one moment. And that's not necessarily to create fear, okay? But in, but in some respects, I suppose it does. I mean, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 tells us that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, right? I mean, at any given point, those of us who, who seek to live our lives uh, for Christ, and, and, and you're doing good, right? You're, you're walking with him and you're being disciplined in your pursuits of Him, you're spending your time wisely, you're in Scripture, you're, you're doing all these different things. And, and, and like it or not, what we need to be mindful of is some of these things, some of these distractions, some of these uh, descents into sin are very quick. Um, sometimes the enemy has a way of just catching us in a weak moment. And um, I think that's what happened here with Noah. Um, as he maybe convinced himself that... Uh, uh, it was good for him to to test the the fruits of his sample the fruits of his his labor here now this is it's interesting because uh noah drinking the the wine here this is the first mention of wine in the bible if you look at the, f- the principle of first mention in scripture you if you want to if you want to study scripture well part of your exegetical and in your hermeneutics is to say well if i see something in scripture i ought to figure out when was this mentioned the very first time uh, and so if you find wine elsewhere in Scripture, and a lot of people like to look at the fact, like, you know, hey, praise the Lord, I'm drinking my wine tonight because Jesus drank his wine, right? Well, let's study the Bible. What's the first mention of it? Noah getting drunk, right? Now, that's not an indictment on wine. It's just saying we've got we've, we've to be willing to look at Scripture and say, what does it say to us? What does it give me insight into? And so here, this is the first mention of it, and it's already causing problems. I mean, rest assured, and again, uh, there, there's absolutely a basis in Scripture for a believer to, you can say, have, have a glass of wine, right? So I'm not here tonight to say, hey, shame on anybody who does that. Um, now, it is the philosophy in this church that leadership, uh, elders, pastors, uh, are not to partake of alcohol in, in any way, shape, or form. That's a, that's, we've established that um, because the, the bottom line is, is why. Why bother? In a position of leadership, why? All things are lawful, and not all things are beneficial. And so just, just so you know that and understand that. But I firmly believe that alcohol is the doorway to immorality. 
You know, it's long been said of, you know, different gateway drugs and things like that. Alcohol is the gateway to immorality. The number of people who, it was just one night, it was just a couple of drinks, but what it led to, the immorality that then was a part of their evening, the things that they go, man, why did I do that? And not even, not even I mean, our imagination can sort of go to like, oh, these terrible things that some people do. Oh, don't worry, I don't do that. No, what about even the conversation that you just find yourself going, man, why was I even a part of that dialogue? Why did I say that? We've got to be aware of these things. Scripture gives us examples. And so here Noah probably convinces himself that, hey, you know, I worked hard. I'm going to sample the wine here, and, and I'm, it's just me maybe in the tent tonight, and I'm just going to kick back, relax, and enjoy my evening. But the problem is Satan had moved on the heart of one of Noah's sons to pay him a visit that evening. Okay. So Noah, you're here in his tent, he becomes uncovered. It means that, you know, and, and, and some people speculate, hey, but who knows what garments he had on? Alcohol can make you feel a little warm. Who knows what the weather was that night? He's there by himself in the tent. He's thinking, man, I'm hot. And he starts to just kind of toss things off. Who knows? Okay. And so his son um, comes to uh, pay him a visit in verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, this can seem really odd, but what we have to understand is that Scripture gives us insight, especially in, in Leviticus in chapter 17. Um, you get several different Scriptures there around what really boils down to um, cover yourself. That it's, it's wrong for, and it gives kind of a list of different individuals, family members in particular, because that's really what it's focused on there, is that it, it's, it's wrong, it's shameful for you to observe the, uh, the f- for you to see a family member exposed, and I'm sort of paraphrasing there, okay? Um, and I think that that's ultimately a, a, a principle that we would essentially adhere to still today, that, right? There's privacy, Okay, there's a sense of modesty. There's, now, now, some people look at some of these different things, and I think there's an argument to say there's, there's other aspects of um, uh, relationships that can come into play here that, that, that the original language is sort of referring to. Nevertheless, what happens here is that uh, Ham finds his, his father in a compromising situation, that he knows that he should just sort of stay away from this and, and even maybe do his part to provide a little bit more privacy but he exploits the situation. Not only does he observe his father, but he goes out and he tells his brothers about it. And so there's, there's, we, we see here the first approach to this situation, and this is where I think for the sake of our own application tonight, we've really got to consider this here. Because First um, Peter chapter 4, verse 8 tells us something that's very important for us to understand and know as Christians, both in terms of what we've received from the Lord Jesus Christ and because, and as a result of that, what we're to do for other people. First Peter 4, 8, we considered this just briefly last week as Pastor Bobby taught. says, but love what? Love covers a multitude of sin. What does it mean that love covers a multitude of sin? Pastor Bobby uh, elaborated on this a little bit in his commentary last week. And I would also add that when we think about love covering a multitude of sins, certainly we ought to first and foremost think about Jesus Christ, that his love towards us, God's love towards us and giving us his one and only begotten son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that whosoever would believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, Greater love hath no man than he who would lay down his life for another. Our understanding of love ought to be rightly 
rooted in God. That's our greatest understanding of what love is. But as Christians, we're called to demonstrate love towards one another. We're called to uphold that same principle within the church, the belief that love covers a multitude of sin. Does that mean that we tolerate sin within the church? No. Does that mean that we're supposed to uh, be the proverbial doormat for someone uh, for the sake of love? I'm just going to love them and let them do whatever they want to me. No. That's not, uh, that, that would be an inconsistent application of Scripture. However, I would submit to you that the church today, the capital C church, could do well to understand this passage a little bit more and, and know that, man, there's, there's some times when there's conflict, there's some times when there's disagreement, there's some times when, and may, and yes, maybe there is sort of some, some sin, depending on how you define it, uh, not gross immorality that needs to be dealt with in sort of a Matthew 18 type situation, but just, man, somebody screwed up. And far too often what happens is the heart of some people is I'm going to expose it. I'm going to expose it or I'm going to make an issue out of it. I'm going to tell other people about it. And then we see in Scripture other things, right, about busybodies, gossips, backbiting. We see warnings against this, against this elsewhere in Scripture. Imagine if the church was to be just a bit more loving and to say, you know what, I'm just going to love them. I'm just going to care for them. I'm going to minister to them. That covers sin. And so for Shem, who knows what was, or excuse me, for Ham, who knows what was going on in his heart? Clearly he had some sort of issue. I think what we can assume here, especially with how Noah deals with this on the back end, in terms of basically the curse that he puts upon Ham and his family, I, th- I think we can trust here that, that what Ham was demonstrating, and maybe even his offspring, Canaan specifically, um, was that there was rebellion in their hearts. That there was already sort of a bend towards evil. Um, towards uh, sin. And, and maybe there was resentment on the part of Ham. Maybe for him it was like, yeah, see? Maybe it's, everybody thinks he's so great. You know, but watch this, I'm going to expose him. And who knows? We could all come up with probably our own scenarios that are even less about Noah and Ham and more about just experiences we've had in our own life, whether it's ways we've felt about somebody or whether we've experienced it from somebody. We go, yeah, I know what that's like. So Ham goes in here and he, see, and he sees his father and he's just like, oh, and he steps out and he says, guys, you got to check this out. But look at the response of his brothers. Now, his brothers don't indict him. His brothers really don't do anything, at least in scripture that we see recorded to him, but their actions tell us everything. Because Shem and Japheth then in verse 23, they take a garment and they, and, and they don't just go in and say, let's cover dad up. No, they're very intentional here. They take a garment, they lay it on both of their shoulders. So both of them are taking this garment and they go backwards into the tent. And they sort of lay it on, Dad, and they walk out, close things up, right? They're very careful to say, man, we don't want to, we, we don't want to take this in. We don't want to see this. And moreover, we want to protect our dad here. We want to, we, we, you know, clearly he, something happened, right? In their minds, they're probably, who knows? They're, what they're doing, and, and this isn't the, the biblical terminology for it, but one we're acquainted with is they're giving the benefit of the doubt. Right? And their faces were turned, so they went in backward, they covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. You see, they look at this, and they're thinking in their minds, we love him, and we're going to cover this. And so Noah, he awakes from his wine, and he knows what happens. He knows what the younger son had done to him, and how does he know what the younger son had done to him? Well, probably first of all, when he wakes up, he has some remembrance, like most people do, of like, uh uh-oh. I don't think that night went how I thought it was going to go. Moreover, he, he knows that there's some garment laid across him, and he's thinking to himself, I, I don't think I put this here. 
and, and then maybe from there he goes and talks um, to his sons and, and un- comes to understand. And so then he said, verse 25, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 900 in 50 years, and he died. You know, it is really uh, an unfortunate end to the primary story of Noah. <clears throat> As I mentioned, Scripture, fortunately, we, we see, and it should be an encouragement to us, um, considers Noah to be a faithful man. Um, he's commended for his faith, but far too often, man's end is not as strong uh, as his beginning. Right? And for us, it should absolutely be uh, the other way around, for those of us who have come to, to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we ought to ca- say, okay, the beginning may have been a little rough, but I know Jesus now, and I may not be yet what I want to be or what the Lord has created me to be, but I know I'm not the man that I was. And praise God for that. And so we continue on that path of sanctification, hopefully ending in a place where we can say, man, life had a good a good finish to it. We find ourselves there still bowing before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, hopefully hearing the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your salvation. Um, Noah had a a somewhat unfortunate end here in Scripture, but we also see a very stern rebuke that's given, and not just a rebuke, but a curse that's put upon him. And a lot of people say, man, this seems a little unfair. And again, I think we have to understand here that there was likely a lot more that Noah knew about him uh, and his children at this point. Now, other people say, too, why is it that he was uh, cursing here Canaan, his grandson? Um, well, I believe that, that what this is is that Canaan was the youngest, um, and that that essentially then in cursing um, the youngest, and, and Canaan perhaps already, too, had sort of a, uh, a demeanor about him, a personality, a behavior that, that was uh, suggestive that he was going to be a bit uh, rebellious. Um, but many people suggest that in, in, in cursing Canaan, it really encapsulated, hey, if it's the youngest, it's the youngest all the way up. And what we see then is through many of the descendants of Canaan, especially, I mean, the Canaanites, right, um, uh, become a very wicked people. Um, and so, in fact, it, it certainly seems that Noah's uh, curse was indeed prophetic um, and that uh, this carried through multiple generations. Now, we don't have uh, nearly the time tonight. This would be an entirely... Uh, different study in and of itself, but I feel compelled to mention that throughout history, just like other verses that I alluded to at the beginning, these verses here in particular have been used wrongly, misapplied, um, to support aspects of a distinguish, um, uh, distinguishing in races and subjugation of races. Absolutely wrong, out of context, poor exegesis, poor hum- hermeneutics, it doesn't apply at all. That's not at all what the scripture is telling us here. Sadly, that's been used far too often um, to support uh, uh, racism and the like. Um, That's not what we're told at all here. Just simply that um, there is a curse upon one of Noah's descendants. And again, we see, uh, we do see, unfortunately, through many generations where the implication of that uh, is carried out. And what that tells us more than anything here is that sin has consequences. And sin has consequences perhaps throughout, in some cases, many generations. Some of you are sitting here tonight and you may be thinking, yeah, I know that. 
the people, you know, people that I've counseled before and discipled where one of my primary encouragement to them as they're facing some difficulties in there, and, and, and sometimes people are just sort of right on the cusp. It's like, man, you're, you're right here. You've got two decisions in front of you, and this decision is going to take you in an, in an awesome direction, and this decision is going to take you in a terrible direction. And the fact is, this one, the one that's potentially going to just, just totally upend your life, is the decision that's been being made in your family for generations. And to challenge those individuals, and I can think of some of them in my mind, to say, break the cycle. Stop it. Stop it right here. You can be the one. You can be the one right now that you start to take your family in a different direction. I don't care who your father was and who his father was and his father and his father and his father. You be the one that generations from here start to say, let me tell you about what my dad did. Right? And that happens over and over and over again. And so we see that sin does have consequences. But here's the other thing, guys, that we need, and we'll, we'll close on this here tonight as we consider just this passage. Love covers. Sin does have consequences, but love covers it. Let's, let's consider a pattern here for a moment as we close. Let's go back to the beginning in Genesis in the garden. Okay? What do we see? God says, here you go. Right? Here you go. This is what I have for you. This is the instruction to you. Adam, man, says, okay, God. But after a period of time, something starts to happen, right? A slow fade, a slow descent towards sin. They didn't decide to rebel against God just that night. It wasn't just all of a sudden like, hey, I'm worshiping, and then boom, hey! Like the, this, this was a process that was happening, a distancing from God. And then they tasted of a fruit, fell into sin. But then what did God do? He covered it. He said, I'm going to cover you, but there's going to be consequences, Okay? Then comes the next one, Noah. Here in the new world, God says, here you go. Here's what I have for you. Here's your instruction. Noah says, hey, great. But then slow descent into sin. Noah, it happens also, tastes of a fruit. Watch out for the fruit, right? Noah himself tastes of a fruit, falls into sin. But what happens? Love covers it. You see, we see a pattern over and over again in Scripture. Man's tendency, man's bend towards sin, our indulgence in sin, but because of a covenant that's been established, it's covered, right? And we know ultimately what that, cov- that covenant is. We covered several of them here this evening, but there's one covenant right now that, that is overarching, one covenant that uh, we are under today, right? It's the seventh covenant. It's the covenant of grace. Um, and it's where Jesus says, Behold, <laughs> as he passes around the bread, right? As he blesses it, he breaks it. He says, behold, this is my body, the new covenant given for you. Take, eat of this, and as often as you do, do so in remembrance of me. And then he passes the cup, he passes the wine. He says, this is my blood, the new covenant poured out for you. Right? And so, yes, this is the pattern that we see consistently throughout Scripture, but praise God, we're in a place because of an everlasting covenant where we can say, Lord, you've covered me. You've covered me. I'm no longer in con- I'm no longer condemned, but I've been reconciled and restored. The encouragement to us, though, is is kind of twofold, right? Um, to understand what it is that He has done for us, and to then be disciplined and and following after Him, abiding in Him, so that we don't find ourselves still in that same pattern, right? We do have a choice to to break those patterns. 
But also, as we look at the example of those who cover, let's be a people that cover, right? Not those that expose. Let's also be a people who carry out aspects of this covenant by saying, man, love covers a multitude of sins. Let's be a people that says, we're going to cover one another, right? We're going to love one another. We're going to be at peace with one another. You know, as we're, we're, we're in a reprieve right now, and I'll, I'll close in prayer here. We're in a little bit of a reprieve right now. That's, why the, that's what the holidays do. Happens every year. Okay? And it's a good thing. That's why people are excited for Christmas. If you don't know it or not, you're excited because it gives us a little bit of a break. Because generally speaking, people start to go, okay, I'm going to chill for a minute. And, and it's just what we're seeing happening, right? But please don't convince yourselves, guys, that come New Year's Eve, that when you wake up the next morning, everything's just going to be poof, back to the beginning of 2020, the way things maybe you're still sort of longing for in some way, right? There's going to be new trials that come. There might be a whole host of, of new things that come our way, okay? There might be a whole other storm that comes at us. But remember, it's only in the midst of those storms that that rainbow can appear and God can say, remember, remember, I'm here. I've made a covenant with you, right? And it's only in the midst of those moments that we get to go, okay, I'm going to choose to love and I'm going to allow my love to just cover this up. I don't need to make a deal out of this. I don't need to expose this. I don't need to be backbiting. I don't need to be gossiping. I'm just going to love, right? I'm going to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm going to love my neighbor as myself and trust that all things are fulfilled in that, as Jesus said. Right? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Uh, We praise you, Lord, for it. We thank you for it. We love you for it, Lord. Uh, What a blessing it is. And Lord, to consider so many different aspects of, of Scripture, yet throughout it all, Lord, is that consistent theme of your love for us, of your plan of salvation. And in every, every, every book, Lord, you point us to Jesus. And so we thank you, Lord, again for this evening for pointing us to Jesus and for reminding us that you have established a covenant with us, a covenant of grace uh, that's rooted in Jesus, his body broken, his blood shed, and that covers us, Lord. And that we, too, can be a part of that, Lord, as we love others in, in just even a fraction, Lord, of the way that you love us. Lord, help us to do just that. And throughout, Lord, the rest of this year and this holiday season, Lord, may we uh, be mindful, Lord, diligent in perhaps uh, offering an, an extra, Lord, outpouring of love towards those around us, we pray. Help us to be a church that loves well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week. So make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.